asleep last Sunday night texting a friend here at Highland. And I, I won't get into the details of, of his life, but if you know him and his wife and their kids, the things they've done for the Lord over the last two years are just amazing, like really giving themselves for others because of their love for Christ. But two weeks ago, two weekends ago, they were dealt a really difficult blow in the midst of that faithfulness, just a really difficult blow. And he and his, his wife are really struggling with the question of why. Why, God, is it turning out like this? So I fell asleep texting with him Sunday night about that. And then I wake up Monday morning and I get in the car to drive to Dallas for a retreat. And the first thing I hear as I get in the car and turn on the radio are the words, over 50 dead and the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. First thing I heard. So, of course, I'm scrambling as I'm, as I'm trying to figure out what happened while I was sleep, sleeping here in my bed, safe in Memphis, what happened in Las Vegas. And of course, now we know the details that 59 dead, including the shooter, nearly 500 injured by, by one man in a hotel room with a lot of guns shooting down on people, innocent people. Man. And then, of course, a week before that, as we were ending connection service, Breeshan got word that a shooter had walked into a church of Christ in Nashville, not far from here, and shot six. A week before that, a hurricane had, had bore down on the Caribbean and on Florida. A week before that, a hurricane had hit the Texas and Louisiana coast and there was terrible flooding following it. In between there was an earthquake in Mexico. And then of course, we, we listened to reports as people in a, in a nursing home in Florida died because there was no air conditioning and it got terribly hot. And now we're watching as in Puerto Rico, two and a half weeks out from their storm, most of the island is still without power. Why? Right. Why? So as I drove from, from Memphis to Dallas, which has never been a fun drive, it got even worse when we had kids. As we, as we made that drive and I looked in the rearview mirror at my kids just sitting there as peaceful as they can be, not suspecting anything, right? Our family's safe in that car. It just dawned on me that as safe as we feel, as secure as we feel, even when we feel like we are doing the Lord's work, that we are never that far away from crisis, never that far. Why? So we're not the first to ask that question. You know, you could, you could trace that question all the way back to Job and his friends. You could really trace it probably farther back to maybe even Cain and Abel. We're not the first to ask that question. But I was thinking about it the whole way as I was driving to Dallas. I get to Dallas, I drop the family off and I go to this retreat with, with other ministers. And the presenter on the first night shows us this picture. So this is a picture called the Wittenberg altarpiece in Germany. It's actually in the front of a church where Martin Luther once preached during the Protestant Reformation. So you can imagine this picture as an altarpiece. It is in the front of the church right behind the, the altar or the lectern where the preacher's preaching. And this was before churches had PowerPoint. And so it gives people something to look at when the sermon gets boring. You, you've never had that experience, but theoretically a sermon could get boring. And so you're, they're looking at this picture and, and this picture, it's, it's pretty obvious what it is. It's the Last Supper, that's what it's called. And so uh, why is it called the Last Supper? Well, because it's, it's Jesus' last meal 
with the disciples. And of course, one of the things you got to get over in this picture is that it's, it's painted in the 1500s in Europe. So it looks like a lot of white guys from the Middle Ages with pantyhose. So just kind of get over that. But zoom in there. So in this picture, you've got the disciples around the picture and then you've got Jesus there in the corner and leaning against his chest is the disciple, John. So this is the last supper. Jesus knows going into this meal and we read about the things he says during the meal. Jesus knows that he's going to die. In fact, he knows that so well that in this picture, it's kind of one of the haunting things about this picture that he's actually reaching out and he's placing the bread in the mouth of Judas. So the one who's going to betray him and set his crucifixion and death in motion, Jesus is actually reaching out and, and touching him. So death and, and tragedy, they're not just written all over the scene. I mean, Jesus is actually touching it, right? But look at Jesus at his face. He's concerned but he's not afraid. He's not panicked. In fact, you can kind of see this hint of love in his eyes, maybe. Maybe for John, who's leaning against his chest. Maybe, maybe also for Judas. I mean, knowing what he knows, that he's about to die, that this is his last supper. How does he have a face like this? And what does he know that we don't know? Uh, without really knowing it, when we, when we ask that question, we're swimming in really deep waters. The question of why has been asked for a long time. It's the question my friend and his wife are asking right now. It's the question that all those who've been touched by this Las Vegas shooting are asking. It's the question that all those who've had storms and earthquakes are asking right now, the question of why. Historically, we've called that question, we've given it a name, and, and the name is the problem of evil. And if we were, if we were to put that, that question into kind of into some different words, we might put it like this. How does evil, how does suffering exist in a world created by a God who is loving, just, and powerful? How does evil exist in that world what place does sorrow have there? So I'm not gonna solve that problem today. And uh, I hope you, you're not expecting that. That's something that the Bible gives a lot of different answers to. It's something that theologians and scholars have thought about in a lot of different ways. I'm not gonna go into those details today. What I find myself doing as I look at that picture though in light of everything going on this week and in light of the context of that picture, the Last Supper with death all around it and Jesus just looking at it so calmly, what I find myself wanting to do is to grab Jesus by the shirt or, or the toga, pull him to me, look him in the eyes and say, what is it you know that I don't know? Because I gotta know. So if you've ever read your Bible, you know that Jesus typically answers questions how, with a question, or with a story. And in this case, it's with a story. So if you've got your Bible and you want to go to Matthew 13, I encourage you to do that, starting in verse 24, but I'll also have it up on the screen behind us. So Jesus answers the question. This is how he does it. Jesus told him another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Well, where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay, so because I'm dense, uh, Jesus gives me uh, what we might call the Cliff Notes version of this parable. So you may know what Cliff Notes are. Uh, cliff notes are the things you read if you don't read the book that's been assigned in English class. Now, I don't know anything about cliff notes, but some of you apparently do, right? Okay, so what Jesus does is give us a summary of the parable and he explains it. And this is what he says. It's a few verses later. You got to jump down to verse 37. Jesus comes back to the parable and he says this, the one who sowed good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Okay, the weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So at that retreat, I was at a friend told a story. He's a minister in Atlanta. He told a story about a woman in his church. She's in her 80s. And she just lost her husband of 60 years shortly before the retreat. So he was spending some time with her before he was set to leave. And she said something that just haunted him as he traveled from Atlanta to Dallas. And she said, I only have three memories before I married my husband. I can only remember three things before I was married to him. And it dawned on him at that moment that she, she hadn't just lost her husband. She'd lost her whole world, right? Her whole world. So what Jesus wants us to do in this parable is imagine ourselves as farmers. And we're not, we're not farm owners, we're tenant farmers. Someone else owns the farm. But we take our job really seriously, like I know that you would. We get up every morning and we work our little plot of dirt that the master has given us and we take care of it. I mean, we're out there, we're working that soil. We're making sure that that wheat gets enough water and gets enough sunlight. We're just out there, we're taking care of it, right? This, this field is our whole world. But we wake up one day and there's weeds in our field. And you know what our first instinct is? Our first instinct is to go to the master and say, did you do this? Right? In this case, the master's God. God, why did you do this? I'm not gonna tell you, like this is this moment where you're wondering like, what's here gonna say next? I'm not gonna tell you that's the wrong thing to say. In fact, look at the parable, if you've got your Bible there. 
Notice that the master, God, doesn't say, how dare you? You ungrateful little snot, right? Get off my property. He doesn't say, you know what? You're going to go clean the horse stalls because of that. He doesn't punish them. Apparently, the master can handle those questions. Apparently, you can ask them. Uh, I read about a doctor recently who said, when he dies, he's only got one thing he wants to do. He wants to walk into God's throne room with a cancer cell in his hand and say, why? Why? God can handle that. He can handle it. If you read through the Psalms, you've got person after person and Psalm after Psalm who is crying out to God, asking why. So the first thing I want to say to you today is, in light of everything going on in our world, that it is a biblical thing to do to ask God why. You have my permission. God can handle it. As the creator and sustainer of the world, it is his responsibility to handle those questions. And he does it. But when we ask that question, God, why did you do this? What I want you to do is to pay attention to what Jesus says his answer is. God, why did you do this? God, did you do this? And God, the master says, no. An enemy did this. No. God did not will evil. God does not cause evil. No evil comes from God. As 1 John says, in him is light and there is no darkness at all. Right? That's what Jesus says. And in a world where all the news is bad, that's good news. Right? We need to hear that. So, so many of us will find ourselves at, time, at, a, at times at a hospital bedside of someone who's dying. Or we will arrive at the home of someone who has just lost someone who is very dear to them. And we will have this impulse to say something. Right? It, it's really difficult to just sit there with them in that crisis because we have this impulse. And I think it comes from God because God is the one who comforts those who mourn. And we want to participate in that with God. And so we have this impulse to say something. And so sometimes we say things like, well, God must have a reason for it. Or God must have needed another angel. Or like a friend said who, who lost his wife when she was 22. And his dad, who's trying to comfort his son, doesn't know what to say, says, well, God picked one of his roses this time. I understand where those things come from, and I've said some of those things. The problem is, if you accept that, that God has his reasons, okay, even if I can't understand them, inevitably it leads you to the following point which is he might have his reasons and apparently he uses death for his reasons, right? Apparently death is his tool. And Jesus says, no, right? An enemy 
did this. Death is not the tool of God. Death is the enemy of God. If death was not the enemy of God, Jesus would not have had to die. You know, Jesus would not have had to enter death in order to destroy it from the inside out. Think about this. I asked this question in prison where I do this Bible study on Wednesdays. What is it about death that we cannot stand? It's separation. And they got that in prison just like this. Separation. Separation from the ones we love. Separation from the things we love, from the dreams we had. Okay, if that's the problem with death, what is the mission of God? Is the mission of God not to overcome all separation? Is the project of God not to come and dwell with us? Is the mission of God not to reconcile all things to himself, like he says in Colossians, to bring those who are far away close by the blood of Jesus, as he says in Ephesians, right? Death is not the tool of God. It is the enemy of God. Don't be fooled. God did not do this. Satan did this. That's really comforting to me. It's terrifying. Because what it acknowledges is that there is a power in the world that uses death as its tool. But we don't need Jesus to tell us that. We've all run into that. It's comforting because I don't have to hate God. I don't have to hate him. All right. So as we stay in this parable, now that I feel like God and I are back on the same team, I ask him the following question, which the the servants in the parable ask. And that question is, God, do you want me to go get the weeds? Right? Like, I'll just take care of this. God, don't even worry about it. I'll go take care of it. You know, I find myself a lot of times wishing I had the power my boys think I have. I've got two little boys. And they'll skin their knee, they'll fall down on their bike. And what do they do? They come to you and they want you to kiss it. And so I do, and and somehow it often makes it better, right? But I can look at that bloody knee and know it didn't do a thing. I wish I had that power that I could keep away every broken bone they're gonna have in this life, every broken heart, they're going to have in this life, but I don't have that power. But of course, God, you have that power. And so I I think to myself, God, here, just give me a shovel, point me in the direction of the weeds. I'll take care of them. I'll handle it, God. Just point me in the right direction. And God has to stop and sit me down and say, Eric, if I pulled up all the evil, who would be left? Right? Who is without sin? Jesus says. He says, Eric, if I sent you out there to pull up all the evil, I'd have to get rid of you first. Hmm. Well, I didn't want to hear that. But I reckon if you think back to that picture, the Wittenberg altarpiece, that's how Jesus can embrace John in his chest and touch Judas with his hand because the two of them are not that different, are they? They're both growing side by side in the field, the wheat and the weeds. And so that leaves us with just one last question for Jesus. Okay, if you didn't cause this, but if the weeds of evil are gonna grow alongside the wheat of good, for a while at least, the last question, the very obvious one is, will it always be this way? Will it always be this way? 
Tom Long, he's, a, he's a, like a, a hero preacher to me. He tells this story that he went to Germany and he was at a Holocaust museum in Germany and there in the museum is this picture of a girl and her mother walking to the gas chamber. She's a little girl, probably about the age of my sons. And the mom who doesn't have anything left in this world has love still for her daughter. And so in her last act of love in this black and white picture, she's covering her daughter's eyes as they walk to the gas chamber. And Long says that every person who has stood in front of that picture has thought to themselves, God, don't let this be the last word. Don't let whatever beast that is in history today, don't let it have the last word. And Jesus says, it won't. God will have the last word, right? So if you look back at the, at the parable, that's what Jesus says. A harvest is coming. Flooded schools, a shooter in Las Vegas, you know, earthquake, rubble, destroying schools in Mexico, Puerto Ricans without power. My friend here, his sorrow, his wife's sorrow. The answer is it will not be this way forever. God says, I won't leave it like this. I think the reason that Jesus can sit there in that picture with this just steely calm is because he knows that. He knows it won't always be this way. You know, the reason he can sit at this table full of folks who are debating what happened and what happens next and he can stay calm and the reason that he can reach out and, and touch Judas, touch tragedy with his fingertips is because he knows this isn't the last word. That there will come a day when God will send out his angels and they will pluck up every mass shooter, every storm cloud and its floods and every cancer cell and toss them in the fire. And they will be destroyed. You know, that's really difficult for some of us to hear. And I don't, I don't celebrate the judgment of God, right? Like I, I would love to believe God won't judge someday. But those who have suffered in this life demand justice, right? The martyrs in Revelation ask God, how much longer till you deal with those who put us to death? Right, like, when will justice be done? And Jesus says, it's coming. It is coming, right? Jesus says in Revelation, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea, which means chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will be with them. No more separation, right? They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It will not always be like this.
So if you go back to that picture, let me throw it up here one more time. The Wittenberg altarpiece. There's really three characters in this picture aside from Jesus. There's the disciples. And they're around the table and they're, they're discussing what's gone on this week and what's about to happen. And, and they're updating their Facebook status and they're tweeting out their thoughts about what happened and they're adjusting their pantyhose and things like that. I mean, they're distracted, right? They're distracted. This is the last supper, but they're not even paying attention to Jesus, right? They're distracted. Okay, and then you zoom in there and you've got Judas and he knows the tragedy that's coming and look at his foot. It's already pointed towards the door. He's ready to run. But then you've got John who's leaning against the chest of Jesus. I mean, somehow in this moment, when there's so much uncertainty and fear around, he notices that the only one who's not afraid, the only one who's calm is Jesus. And so while everyone else is distracted or ready to run, he's leaning in. This is his chance in the midst of this chaos to lean into Jesus and he doesn't want to miss it. That's what I hope you'll do this week because I suspect the news is going to be bad. Last week was a bad week. The week before that was a bad one. The week before that was. I have every reason to believe this week's going to be awful. Can you lean into Jesus? I hope you can. Let's uh, stand and sing. We've got shepherds in the back who'd love to pray with you if you'd like prayer today. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus in the midst of a world of uncertainty, I'd be glad to receive you and baptize you in these waters behind me. I'll be down here, down front. Let's sing together.